Romans chapter 5, we went through the first 11 verses on Wednesday night. It's as far as we could get. We're going to go back over those verses because there's kind of a big picture thing here that caught my attention that I'd like to talk about with you all this morning. So I'm going to read it through, as usual. We'll pray and we'll see what the Father has to teach us. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction, our access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult in the hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint. Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us. In that, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his faith, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Is that good news? Praise you, Father. What, a, what an overwhelming, wonderful truth. Every verse, Father, makes me just want to hang out for a while. Almost every word in this Spirit-inspired passage blows my mind as to the depth of Your love and the extent to which You were willing to go to save a wretch like me. That as Brian just taught, Father, we could be either thief on the cross. The only difference is a heart that just cries out, Lord Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. It's the only difference. And we pray, do, we do pray, Father, for both thieves. We are thankful that, Lord Jesus, that right now, That you save us by your life. That you live forever to make intercession for us. That you continue to pray for us. And while you do that, Lord, may we continue to pray for the other thief. Father, there there are some marvelous things in this passage, as usual, in your word. And the one that stands out to me, Father, I pray you will help us to understand. And help us truly, Father, to exalt Him. By Your Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. I have a lot of fun. I've got to confess to you, don't tell anyone, but I have fun studying and preparing and thinking through these things. And the fun often comes with some of the trivia that I get to pass along. You know, colloquialisms and, and word plays and, and stories out of history and just things that, that I dig up to kind of get us rolling. And I, I find that the English language is just a funky, curious thing. 
And the truth is that... Now, I'll give you the example I, I was thinking about today. How we name animal groups is hilarious. It's not based on some biological understanding, some depth of understanding. I, I know that different animals have their biological names. I'm talking about how, how we name groups of them. It has more to do with folklore than it does to do with fact. We look at certain animals and we give them either virtues or vices, and based on those, we give them their group name. For example, a group of owls is actually called a parliament. A group of foxes is called a skulk. A skulk of, you know, skulking foxes. You've got a raft of ducks, which I think is really funny if you think about it. A raft of ducks floating along together. A leap of leopards. A troop of apes. Which I don't know if our military personnel appreciate that one. A colony of ants, you've probably heard. A roll of armadillos. (laughs) A flutter of butterflies. (laughs) A battery of barracuda. That's a great one. A murder of crows. Poor crows. Yeah, a murder. That's the word. Look, Dad, a murder of crows. You also have a coalition of cheetahs, which I think politically works. You're going to love this one. A congregation of alligators. Let's hope not, right? But of all of these descriptive and funny and ironic names, the the standout, and you all know this one, is the pride of lions. That's cool. If I was in any animal group, I think that's the one I'd want to be into, because that's cool. Hey, check it out. The pride of lions. Because of their regality, you know, they, they, they look noble. They look kingly, the lion, the king of the forest. He's not really the king of the forest, but he thinks he is. You know, he acts that way. He's got the big mane. And, of course, we want to keep the main thing the main thing. (laughs) Sorry. If I do too many of those, I'll have to claw my way back out. (laughs) Some of you are going to want to muzzle me, but, you know, it's whatever. In Aesop's fables, he even talks about the lion's share. Meaning, indicating that the lion gets the extra portion because of their regality, because they are king. The lions share the greater portion than all the others. And even the Bible takes note of the pride of lions. Check this out. Zechariah chapter 11 verse 3 says, There is a sound of the young lion's roar, for the pride of the Jordan is ruined. The young lions roar, for the pride of the Jordan is ruined. Of course, I think if we're really interpreting correctly, the pride of the Jordan there does not belong to the lions, but the pride of the Jordan referred to the beauty of the Jordan River Valley. That it was lush and it was plenteous, and there were plenty of animals for the lions to feed upon, and there was plenty of fruit and vegetation for people to enjoy. And it spoke of that, that Jordan River Valley, Zechariah prophesied, would be laid waste. Would be wiped out. People have a wrong view of Israel. I thought it was interesting this weekend and a great point that Jake made. He was talking about how we have kind of a, a wrong view of heaven. And he said, I think it's because we have a wrong view of the Garden of Eden. That in both cases, you know, the Garden of Eden, what, they just walked around? What'd they do? I mean, how boring. 
But God called them to cultivate that. And our view of heaven, what do we do? Float around on the clouds and play harps? How boring. That's a wrong perspective. Well, people have a wrong perspective. Good job, Jake. People had a wrong perspective of Israel, even today. I'll talk to people about, hey, you want to go on the Israel trip? Nah, I don't want to go out in that Middle Eastern desert. That is not Israel today. Yes, there is the desert region, and it's austere, and it's magnificent, but Israel has portions of it. The northern area, the Galilee, and the northern Galilee, it's kind of like here in the northwest. Flowing waterfalls and growing trees, and what the, what the Israelis have done since they've come back into the land and recultivated the land, and how it's growing and bearing fruit, and it's, it's flowery, it's beautiful. It's a remarkable place. And it was in the days of Zechariah. Some four or five hundred years before Jesus came, Zechariah said, the Jordan River Valley is ruined. And it was a prophecy. And shortly after Jesus left the earth, it began to happen. And as a matter of fact, for some 1900 years, the land of Israel laid waste was wiped out. It was a desolation. It was awful, boggy, mosquito-infested, malaria-infested land. Who would want it? The reason why the Jews were able to come back and reclaim it was the Arabs didn't want it. They were selling it to them at top dollar. I think I told you before, the land of Israel is one of the only countries that they actually have the proof of purchase. Right here. But they also bought it back. And, and, and rolled back the bogs and, and reclaimed the land and, and literally yard by yard reworked it. And it's flourishing today, just as God's Word said it would. But in Zechariah's day, he prophesied the pride of Israel would be fallen. You see, Proverbs 16, verse 18 says, Pride goes before a destruction. And a haughty spirit before stumbling. It is better to be humble in spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil, the lion's share, if you will, with the proud. And there are many things in which we take pride that would just end up devastated. That's kind of a running theme in Christian teaching, and you've probably heard teachings before on pride goes before a fall, that we need to humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord, that we are not to be a proud, boastful people, but a humble people recognizing the glory and the greatness of our God and Father, right? And the glory of Jesus. That the glory is all His, not ours. So we don't take pride. And so we as Christians start to struggle a bit. Are we just supposed to put each other down? Is that how we're supposed to live? Praise Jesus, we're idiots. You know, that's not, that's not the key. Now Jesus did teach, Luke 14, 11, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. But is there anything in which we may take pride as His followers, as His people? James chapter 1, verse 9 says, The brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position. So you can glory in the high position of your humble circumstances. I like that. James chapter 4 verse 10. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and He will exalt you. So there is a promise of some sort of a, of a, a raising up, a lifting up. Peter says, 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 5, All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. 
For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you at the proper time. There is a certain pride, not only acceptable, but distinctive to followers of Jesus Christ. A pride because of Jesus. Many years ago, I was talking with my dear sister and friend, Susan Harris. And after a slew of teachings on our woebegone, broken down status, you know, our our low, messed up lives that we were all kind of embracing at that time, Susan came to me and she said, can't we ever talk about the goodness Jesus has done in us? She said, aren't we after all a royal priesthood? I mean, is it okay every now and then for saints to feel good about that? Or should we just always, you know, sink down into the mire of our lowliness? It was a point well given and a point well taken by me. I began to think about it even then. Susan's comment, and it stuck with me all these years, and I do think from time to time, hey, we are a royal priesthood. As Brian likes to call us, saints of the Most High God, saints of the royal priesthood. It is who we are. Loved by Him. Right? I am loved by Him. It's who I am. And so yes, there is something to to take pride in. Something to be lifted up in. Now we are in this marvelous section of Paul's teaching letter to the saints at Rome. And each, each day that goes by as I ponder it and, and read it and meditate on it, I'm just more and more lifted up. Humbled by what God has done, but lifted up in what He's done as well. And in this section, we talked about Wednesday night, Paul is, he is clearly defining and characterizing the wonder of life as a Christian. I think we have short-souled the world on Christianity. On how glorious it is, how marvelous it is to walk and to pursue holiness and to pursue righteousness and to seek sanctification and to be redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no better way to live. There truly isn't. Oh, well, I have to give up this, that, and the other. Yeah, this, that, and the other that's totally terrorizing your life. But to walk with Jesus... That's good stuff. It is like, it's life unlike any other. And in this humble yet lifted up life, there are certain points of pride. Now, if it's difficult for you to hear that, it was difficult for me to study it. And I really had to ask the Lord through the week, Am I, am I overshooting this, Father? That there are points of pride? When Paul starts to talk about pride and boasting and all that in his later letters, he says, I'm talking as a, in the flesh. I'm talking foolishly here. But if I'm going to boast, let me boast about this. This is foolishness. This is stupid. But I'm going to say it anyway. Because he's making a point. And so I was back and forth with the Lord. Are there, are there really points of pride in Christian living? And there are. We are not the doleful, woeful, miserable creatures some people think we're supposed to be as followers of Jesus. Those sour-faced Christians worshiping the Lord. (laughs) We should be 
the most joyful, the most peaceful, the most confident people on the face of the planet. And not because of what we've done, because of what He's done. And we can't take pride in that, both now and in the life to come. So, just think about this. Here in Romans 5, we learned, talked about this Wednesday night, that by faith we have peace with God. We have access to stand in His grace. Not before His grace, beside or next to, but in His grace we have access. We have joy in tribulation, hope that does not disappoint, His love proven, His Spirit given. And in all of this, He has conveyed to us the word of reconciliation. I mean, that's amazing. It's glorious. And sometimes we just need to stop and recognize that it is good to be a Christian. You can wear that t-shirt. Somebody make it. It's good to be a Christian. That life in Jesus Christ truly is unlike any other way of life. Jeremiah chapter 9 verse 23. Thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not a mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts, boast of this, that he knows and understands me. Right, guys? Men, we talked about this Friday night. That we don't serve to know the Lord. We know the Lord and we serve. That it is all about knowing Him. And we can boast in that. I love that idea. Let him who boasts, boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. You want to boast? Boast about that. I know the Lord. To all those name droppers out there, I have a friend whose uncle knows a cousin who knows Adele. Hey, I know God. (laughs) I happen to be personal friends with His Son. I know the Creator. I can boast about that. Now, today we're going to consider three things here worthy of boasting. But before we do, we've got to get into a little word study. So, uh, just put up with me on this for a minute. A little word study of Romans 5 Verses 1 through 11, beginning there, it says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction, our access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult in the hope of the glory of God. I asked the question Wednesday, who uses that word? Exult. We exult. I exulted in the purchase of a new car this week. No, you didn't. I exult in this. You just don't use that kind of language, you know. So we read it in Scripture and we go, I I exult. Okay. (laughs) I don't know what that means. But I'm going to do it because the Bible says I exult in the hope of the glory of God. Yay! Is that exultation? What is the word? We see this word a full 30 times the Hebrew equivalent in the Hebrew Scriptures. Translated exult, 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 exaltation with a U, not an A, not exaltation as exalting and lifting up the Lord, but exaltation. It's a different word. And in the Hebrew Scriptures, we see it, the first time gives a great picture of the meaning of the word. Check this out. 
First mention of the word exult in the scriptures. 1 Samuel chapter 2 verse 1. Hannah prayed and said, My heart exults in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. So there, the word translated exults in the Hebrew, used those 30 times, is alats. It's used a lot. <laughs> a lot in the Hebrew. It means to be joyful, triumphant. My heart is triumphant in the Lord. Exults in the Lord. The Grinch might say she's joyful and triumphant. If you watch the Jim Carrey Grinch, anybody else see that? It's one of my favorite lines in the movie. She's joyful and triumphant. Anyway, so that's Hannah. And the first time we see this word exult... It's triumphant. My heart exults in the Lord. Hallelujah. So we get a sense that this is a good word, right? It's a positive. It's a victorious word. But in the New American Standard Bible, it only appears six times. That is translated into English. We only see the word exult six times. Now the actual Greek word for it is used much more. Translated differently. One of those times we see it translated is simply a a quote from the Psalms. It's Psalm 16, verses 8 and 9, which says, Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh will also dwell securely. A lots. A lots. My glory, a lots. My glory rejoices. My glory exults. Peter quotes that in that opening sermon, Acts chapter 2, verse 26, where he says, Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exulted. Moreover, my flesh will live in hope. So he says the word and is translated exalted. The Hebrew is translated rejoices. The difference that we see, and and when you run across this, and you will from time to time, a, a quote from the New Testament, in the New Testament of the Old Testament scriptures, and it's not exact. And you go, oh man, that's a contradiction. It's not exactly the same. Well, that's because it's been translated from Hebrew into Greek. And sometimes the words don't exactly line up. We know this. Our English doesn't always line up with words that we try to translate into. And some words are nearly untranslatable because they mean something in a culture that's hard to translate into another. It's marvelous to me that the Hebrew and the Greek are so profoundly translated for us in English as we read through and study. And we can get very, very close. And I've told many of you before, the reason I like to teach from the New American Standard Bible is of all the translations we have so far, this one is the most accurate word-for-word translation. It may not be the most readable. In fact, they mark it at an 11th grade reading level. But it is the the closest. Now, and, And even so, you all know, I still give you translations. I still say, now this word is such and such in the Hebrew or in the Greek, and it means this, because a lot of times the word meaning is bigger than what we can get in just one word translated. The word exalted in Acts 26, or I'm sorry, Acts 2.26, translated exalted, that parallels the Hebrew alats, actually is a good parallel. It's the Greek word agaliao. Agaliao. Rejoice. Be glad. And we see that one throughout the New Testament. Agaliao is used. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, Agaliao. Rejoice. That's kind of a rejoicing sounding word, isn't it? Agaliao. It's hard to say that. You don't say Agaliao. 
But you can say, I I rejoice. But that's not the word that we see here in Romans 5. So see what I mean by confusing? You have the word translated exult in Acts chapter 2, that in the Hebrews, Psalm 16 is translated exult. Well, there it's rejoice. Well, here it's exult. But it's not the word exult in Acts chapter 2. It's the word rejoice. And so, I don't know why they said exalted. Peter should have just said, my tongue rejoiced. All that to say, quoting Jake, the King James does translate this way, Romans chapter 5, verse 2, where we read in the New American Standard, we exult in hope of the glory of God. The King James says, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. I rejoice in the hope of glory. And I do. But that's still not the word. It's not agaliao, the word rejoice in the Greek. Kind of taking you around the long way here on purpose. Exult, rejoice. You might be sitting there thinking, why does it matter as long as we're happy? (laughs) I don't care which one it is. It's important because it goes to the very heart of understanding this passage of how we perceive it. So, get this down. In Romans 5.2 and following, we see the word three times, the word exult in this passage, this section. And the word exult is kalkaomai. Kalkaomai. Not C-O-W, don't write it like that if you're transliterating. Like K-A-U, kau, ha, K-H-A, it's that hard ha sound. Omai. Kau ka omai. Lions and tigers and bears omai, okay? Kau ka omai. Which means to boast. It does not mean rejoice. It doesn't mean happy. It doesn't mean to jump. It doesn't mean any of these other things. It means to boast. And that's the way the word is rightly translated in all the other places we see it in the New Testament. Kau ka omai. To boast. I boast. To boast, to be boastful, to glory in, to take pride in. And so read correctly, we boast in hope of the glory of God. I boast in that. I take pride in that. There are actually a handful of such boastings in the New Testament for followers of Jesus. Things that we may honestly boast in. That though we humble ourselves before the Lord, we may boast in these other things. For example, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 19. Who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Gang, it is a crown of pride. Who is our crown of boasting, Paul says? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at His coming? A crown of boasting, Paul says? He says to the Thessalonians, you are our crown of boasting. We take pride in the fact that where there was not a group of saved people, there is now a group of saved people. And at the coming of Jesus, you are our crown of pride. We will wear you like a crown of glory, a crown of boasting. Can you imagine that concept? Imagine being there, surrounded by a crown of people that you introduced to Jesus. Paul says that's your crown. That's the evangelist's crown. A group of people. 
who come rushing up and surround you. Now, we all know the reality is once we're in the presence of Jesus, we're not going to encircle anybody but Him. We're going to be so enamored of Him. I, I think those moments will happen at some point, maybe a trillion years into eternity. I don't know, when we finally take our eyes off Him once and go, oh, hey, you're the one who told me about Him. Way to go. Jesus. <laughs> But Paul says there's something to this, this this crown of the evangelist. And by the way, it's possible there actually will be an evangelist crown. An actual gift or reward that the Father gives for the people that were evangelized came to Jesus because of the ministry that you lived out. Because of the way you served Him. And remember, again guys, we serve Him because we know Him. So the service is natural. I talk about Jesus because I am so in love with Him, I can't help it. Because I've got such a close relationship with Him, I have to talk to my friends and family and loved ones and strangers at the store about Him. And so he says there's this crown of boasting. This boastful crown of of pride in the group of people who now are saved. And again, we've been taught so long in Christianity, humble yourself, humble yourself, humble yourself, humble, 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 that we get to the point where we're like, I don't want a crown. Uh, don't give me a crown. Hey, I want as many crowns as I can get. I want stacks of crowns, scads of crowns. I want a murder of crowns. I want crown upon crown upon crown. Rick, that's a little ridiculous. No, because the more crowns I have, the more crowns I can cast before Him in worship. Which is the point of the crowns. Revelation 4.10 describes the elders in heaven casting their crowns before the Lord. Which you would think they could only do once. They must have a bunch. Because it's every time they say, holy, 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 the elders bow down and cast their crowns. So what are they doing? It's like the old Dr. Seuss story. I don't know if you've ever read it. Great story. The, the What is it? The 10,000 hats of Bartholomew Covens or something like that. Every time he takes a hat off, there's a hat there. <laughs> Crowns of worship. But again, it is a crown of boasting. And Paul actually makes that comment. We will boast in the fact that we are surrounded by people who came to Jesus because we spoke His name. You can take pride in that. The marvelous thing about taking pride in that is you realize that all you did was introduce them to the one who saves them. But you can feel good about that. It is okay, brothers and sisters in Christ, to feel good about the ministry you do for Him. Not to take credit for it as if you did the saving, but you got him there. You spoke the name. Man, glory in that. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. That's good news. We're called to see that. Now, in Romans 5, Paul packs in three exaltations, three boastings that we have that are sources of great joy in which I believe that we, as followers of Jesus, may take humble pride. Check it out. Again, verse 2, we exult, we boast in hope of the glory of God. And that's the first one. That's a boasting, my friends. We boast in hope of the glory of God. What does that mean, the hope of the glory of God, or simply hope of the glory of God? To a degree, it speaks of our future. Because hope is not something realized. Hope is something expected. It's a good expectation. It's looking forward, right? Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven, 
from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. When we enter the relationship by faith, Jesus initiates something in us. A beautiful pattern. Justification. Propitiation. Redemption. Reconciliation. All this happens in a moment. And that leads us into then sanctification. A lifetime of being formed and reformed after the person of Jesus. Patterning ourselves after Him. But it's not a work that we do, it's a work that He does. He forms us and shapes us and cleans us and washes and continually morphs and moves us forward, transforming the body of this humble state into ultimately what will happen in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, the body of glory. So we have this salvation and then we move into sanctification and then finally glorification. And it's a beautiful process that we can boast in. You notice that I'm not boasting of myself. But I'm boasting in what He did. He saved me. He sanctifies me. He glorifies me. I'm going to tell you about that. I'm going to boast about that. The hope of the glory of God. These old bodies are going to be glorified. Can I get an amen? (laughs) And it's funny because the older you get, the louder the amen. Amen! Why why is it? Why is it that so many churches seem to be graying? And and I I mean this. I want you to think about this for a second. Uh, We have seen this this tendency of falling off. The reason why we have Connect as a ministry. I'm going to do Jim's commercial right now. The reason we have Connect is we want those 18 to 28 year olds back. We don't want them wandering off. We want them here with Jesus. And by the way, we've got a tough, strong crew of fishermen that are, that are working this program. And it's exciting. See? And he's great, so it's both, you know? That's why we have Connect. But there's a reality here. We see young people leaving. We see old people staying. Did he say old people? You know what I'm talking about. Come on, we're family here. We're all headed the same direction. Why does the church sometimes seem to be graying? And I would submit to you on the positive side that it's because, not so much that the church is falling off, but because there's a twinkle in the aging eye. Because the older you get, the more you realize, I'm going to be here. I want to be right here. Because right here reminds me of what's going to happen when I'm not right here. And I know for myself, the older I get, the more I want to be with the saints. Part of it is so I can just adjust to you all because we're going to spend eternity together. (laughs) But isn't that true? Isn't that true? Those of you 50, 60, 70, 80 years old, don't you find the further down the road in life you get, the less you're looking behind and the more you're looking ahead and going... I want that glorified body. That's that's what I'm looking forward to. That's what I'm living for. Unfortunately, younger people don't understand that fully sometimes. 
Now again, we've got a strong cadre of, of leaders in Connect, and they get it. But a lot of young people are, they're still, you know, strong and vital. You know, they don't need to go to the gym. They can eat anything they want. They don't gain weight. It blows my mind. You know? And they can, and they can just go and go and go and go and the rest of us are like, I'm just gonna go to bed. And they don't need Jesus. I got it. We're still under the false notion at a younger point in life, I don't really need him. Right now, I mean, later would be cool, but right now, I got stuff to do. I got to conquer. I got to take on the world. And it's not until you get, I don't know, for me it was about my mid-30s where I started to realize all my efforts in taking on the world were not producing what I thought they would. And suddenly, I started to hope in glory. I started to take a little pride in the hope of the glory of God. Suddenly I began to realize there's something ahead that everything I've done in my life up to this point cannot touch nor will ever touch. The glory of God in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet and the trumpet will sound because a trumpet sounds in victory and triumph and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. So might it be simply that the older we get, the less hope we have in this body and the more hope we have in the glorified body, it's hope in the glory. And younger people, tell your peers. Mike, I see you right there, Mike Dieter. Tell your peers. Yeah, I got, I got a little action going on here in the whole bicep region. I got that, yeah. But that's not going to save me. I cannot work out my way to heaven. I can work out in my salvation. The hope of glory. Listen to this. Isaiah chapter 40. You're familiar with it, but hear the passage. Isaiah 40 verse 3. A voice is calling, Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain be made low and let the rugged ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley and then the glory of the Lord will be revealed all flesh will see it together the mouth of the Lord has spoken that is God saying I guarantee it a voice says call out and then he answered what shall I call out listen all flesh is grass and not the kind you buy at the pot store Although that would work because that dies off too. All flesh is grass and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers. The flower fades. The breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up. Do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense is before him, which is exactly what Jesus says in Revelation 22, verses 1 and 2. I'm coming. And my reward is with me, and my recompense is before me. And then Isaiah continues, like a shepherd, he'll tend his flock in his arms. He's going to gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ones. Oh, it's just beautiful. 
And do you see, this is more, this is more than just hoping for my glory. Back in Romans 5.2, we exult in hope of the glory of God. Why? Why would I broadcast this with great joy? The hope of glory. Listen. Because the hope of glory is Jesus. He is the hope of glory. Take Him out of the picture. we got no hope. He's the one who transforms. He's the one who calls. He's the one coming with His reward. He is the hope of glory. And Paul says as much in Colossians 1.17, God willed to make known to His saints what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The hope of glory. I boast in hope of the glory of God. The hope of glory. I boast in Jesus. I take pride in Him. I'm proud of my Lord. Such that I can't stop talking about Him. And you might say, okay, how does that work? How do I boast in that? In in Christ, the hope of glory. Here's how. That act of kindness on my part that you just pointed out, that's Christ in me. This good thing that you caught me doing, that's Christ in me. That blessing, that compassion, that unselfish behavior, that concern, that ministry, that's not me. That's Christ in me, the hope of glory. Christ in me, Christ in me, Christ in me. My boast is in Jesus, the hope of glory. And that's just the first boasting here. 2 Thessalonians 2.14, it was for this He called you through our Gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hey, I will never be Christ. Hallelujah. But the hope of glory of which I boast makes me Christ-like. Little Christ, remember? In Antioch they were first called Christians. It was meant as a slur. They took it as a a form of pride. Yeah, I am. I'm little Christ. I will never be big Christ. (laughs) But I have Christ in me, the hope of glory. And and it's it's marvelous. You ever break one of those glow sticks? You know, they always come around October. You can buy packs of glow sticks at you know, Costco or other places, and they're for kids to carry around if they if they go out on the night of Halloween so they have something like like that's gonna protect him. I've got a glow stick. <laughs> but have you ever taken one of those as as my kids have and broken it open? David comes into the room and he's just glowing, man. <laughs> you see this glow here and this little smile, you know. <laughs> It's like that. It's like that with the hope of glory, only the glow gets brighter and brighter and brighter and never goes away. Glow sticks, ultimately, they they start to go out. And even the goo inside, you know, it it, it dies. We just let, you know, just let David run around for a week and it'll go away. Um, (laughs) 2 Corinthians 3.12, Paul says, Therefore, having such hope... We use great boldness in our speech. That's almost, that's just this side of boasting. You know, I broadcast, I'm bold, I, I, ex, I exclaim. He says, we're not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading glory. 
That's interesting insight. And I think Paul's indicating that perhaps part of the reason Moses put the veil on in the first place was because the Israelites were afraid. We can't look at that man. But the reason he kept the veil on was that they would not see the glory fading away. Followers of Jesus, listen. The glory doesn't fade away. The glory, the hope of glory is an increasing thing. We all, Paul says, 2 Corinthians 3.18, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. From glory to glory. And I think you could probably add to glory to glory to glory. It's just ever increasing. Which is a picture, I think, for us as followers of Jesus. If truly we boast in hope of the glory of God, we increase. The presence of Jesus in our lives increases. The Word of Christ on our lips increases. The hope in our hearts increases. The hope of glory. We boast in the hope of the glory of God. We tell people about it. And Colossians 3.4 tells us, When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Can you boast in that? Can you take pride in that? I hope so. That's just the first boasting. There's another. Verse 3. And not only this, but we also boast... In our tribulations. (laughs) We boast in our tribulations. That's the second one. Do you boast in your tribulations? See, that's not the same as whining in my tribulations. That's not the same as grumbling in my tribulations or or murmuring in my tribulations. Oh, it's a terrible tribulation. We joke about this at home, but it's funny, the older I get, the more I find myself, it's easy to do. Cheryl will say you're mumbling, mumbling, you know, and I'll be in the bathroom going, I just can't wait to know where I'm scared. What are you saying? I don't know. I'm just, I'm okay. <laughs> that is not boasting in my tribulations. That's grumbling in my stupidity. That's murmuring in the dumb stuff that I've done through the day. You know, it's complaining about the flesh. No, boasting in tribulation. The Greek word tribulation is philipsis. That's T-H-L-I-P-S-I-S. Philipsis. It means crushing. Pressure. The same pressure as we talked about midweek of an olive press. Pressing down on the olives and forcing out that sweet olive oil, which the Bible gives us a, a picture of the Holy Spirit. The crushing. We boast in our crushing. And Paul said in 2 Thessalonians 1.4, We ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. A plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. Rick, I thought you said we're not supposed to be the woeful, doleful sort of people. We're not. We know something worth boasting about. That, as Paul also wrote, 2 Corinthians 4.17, momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. 
While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things that you're seeing, they're temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. But here's the question. If you were here Wednesday night, you're saying, yeah, Rick, we covered this. Please, listen. I know we covered this. But it's such an important value of following Jesus that we need to understand it and get it down and take it into heart. Do we welcome hardship gladly? Do we invite tribulation with open arms? Do we boast glory in the trials and struggles and hardship? Such that Jesus said in Matthew 5.11, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil falsely against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. Your reward in heaven is great. And based on the biblical letters and writings of the New Testament, it's absolutely clear that for Christians in the first century, they were taught to have a ready reception of tribulation. They were to expect it, to assume it, and yes, even to invite it. Because the wounds and the bruises and the scars and stripes... See, Americans are called to boast in the stars and stripes. Christians are called to boast in the scars and stripes. And to take these things as proof positive that I am a follower of Jesus. You want to look like Jesus? He was unrecognizable on the cross. And He said, take up your cross and follow me every day. Can I, like Paul, say, Galatians 6.17, I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. Now, don't confuse that with earning salvation. i got to get bruised up so I can prove to God I'm righteous. No, because you're not. You're saved by grace, no question. But you are sanctified in tribulations. Hard times. Welcome them. It's just a different mindset. Very different from the first world problems that we so often murmur and complain about. Couldn't believe I got a flat tire on the way to work today. I am suffering for Jesus. No, you're not. You got a flat tire, you moron, fix it. And don't call someone a moron. I'm sanctified in tribulation. Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. But take courage. Be of good cheer, He says. I have overcome the world. Why do I want to boast in tribulation? Why would I welcome hardship? Look at what it does. We exult, we boast in tribulations knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance, proven character. And proven character, hope. Now listen, we boast in our tribulations because tribulation brings about, again, perseverance. Hupomone. Hupomone in the Greek means to hold out. That's perseverance. To hold out. To take ground and to hold until the reinforcements come. To stand firm and steady. 
It's more than just patience. Hupomone is active resistance. Occupying and holding. Trials and tribulations are resistance training. You know about resistance training, right? In, in working out and going to the gym. Exercise bands, dumbbells. We found growing up in Southern California, one of the best resistance training exercises when I ran track in high school was going down to the beach and running. Sand. Sand is resistance training. It was brutal. Our coach would take us down there and say, run up and down the beach. And we're like, all right, we're going to the beach. And you get like 10 yards running in the sand and go, man, it's not like running on a nice track. With your spikes. You no, know, you're barefoot in the sand. You, you know, you see it at the beginning. Da, na, 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 na. Chariots of fire, they're running in the sand. It's resistance training. And it's the best kind of training because you're running against, you're, you're forcing your body to go against something that makes it harder for you so that when you're on the track, man, you're a bullet. And tribulation is resistance training, bringing about that perseverance. Because as you hold out in tribulation, you get stronger. And suddenly that perseverance yields proven character. Dokime. Dokime in the Greek means proven. So proven character, the word proven is really just the word there. Tribulations bring about perseverance, bring about provenness. And that's encouraging. Because it means, man, I went through this and I came out the other side by the grace of the Lord, by the power of His Spirit. I'm still standing here. I got to the end of the beach. And I'm stronger now for it. I I have been proven in the trial. In Greek culture, that word dokime was used of the Greek military to speak of battle readiness. More than that, battle tested. You were dokime if you were battle tested. I was asking some of our Navy guys, what, what are some words for that? What, what does it mean you know, to be battle-tested? I got a response from Jim I thought was really cool. He said, well, let me ask you, naval personnel, would you rather go into battle? Would you rather fly with a first-timer or with someone, that, you know, a first-timer has a clean logbook or someone who has a lot of green ink? So what I'm told is that when you're flying combat missions, it's written in your logbook in green ink. I would think if I was flying with someone, I'd want green ink all over the pages. I want the book covered. I'd want to know this person has fought, has been in war, knows what it's like, understands what they're doing, and I will follow someone like that. So Christians, are you war-weary or are you battle-tested? War-weary, battle-tested. You're war-weary if you're doing it in your own strength. You're battle-tested if you are walking in relationship with Jesus and the joy of the Lord is your strength. So that's what it means. that My tribulations, they bring about perseverance, proven character, that battle-testedness, and finally, proven character leads us to hope. Ellipsis. Or, or, sorry, elpis. Elpis in the Greek, not ellipsis. (laughs) Elpis means to look forward in confident expectation. That's hope. And that's the word we see throughout the New Testament Scriptures. Verse 5, hope does not disappoint. Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. In other words, you're going to go through these tribulations, expect them, 
And they're going to develop in you this active resistance. You're going to become battle-tested, and that's going to lead you to hoping. But here's the great news. The problems, pains, and persecutions are not for nothing. Because you get through all of that, and at the end of it, you don't stand and go, Man, what a waste of my time. No one is going to arrive in the presence of Jesus and go, All that for this? It's going to be just the opposite. In fact, it'll be the exact opposite. That was nothing for this. Hope does not disappoint. That absolute expectation of coming good. And what's wonderful about tribulation is the more you go through and the more you overcome and the more persevering and proving you are. The greater the hope, and when that moment of hope arrives, the more awesome it's going to be. Those who spend their entire lives going through hard times of tribulation because they're following Jesus, but man, it's a tough slog when they see Him, are going to be the most joyful of anyone. So welcome tribulation for the sake of Jesus. Now, Peter says in another place, don't welcome tribulation because you're an idiot. You know, don't go out and just do dumb stuff and then get yourself in trouble and go, oh, I'm in jail, so I'm in tribulation. No, that was just, you just made a stupid decision. I was speeding, I got a parking, I got a, you know, speeding ticket. <laughs> I, was, I was in tribulation today. Okay, that's just stupid. <laughs> tribulation for the sake of Jesus. First Peter 5.10, after you have suffered for a little while, The God of all grace who called you to His eternal glory in Christ, the hope of glory, will Himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 8, We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. That I think is my favorite one. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. Because, right Brian, He's a good, good Father. We're struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus. That is that almost personification of the death of Jesus in our tribulations, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. Because remember, He did not stay dead. He resurrected. And the moment of resurrection was glorious. And when the apostles first caught eye of Him, it was magnificent. We boast in our tribulations because our tribulations reveal Jesus who is always worthy of our boasting. Jesus who for the joy set before Him endured the cross despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Hope does not disappoint. All that Jesus went through worse than anybody will ever have to endure. And what was the result? He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Do you think he was disappointed when he got home? Do you think Jesus sat down by the Father and went, oh, I thought it was better than this. I, just don't, I have forgotten that this is all there is. Oh well. Because I told them it was more, Lord, but this is, I guess, I don't know. Playing his harp. You know. <laughs> Hope does not disappoint. And check this out. It's one of my favorite promises of Jesus in Scripture. See, it says that He endured the cross despite from the shame. He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And then He turns around in Revelation 3.21 and says, He who overcomes, I will grant to Him to sit down with Me. 
on my throne. Really? People line up to sit on Santa's lap? Are you kidding me? Why? So you can get a picture of your child crying? We put our kids through this terror? The man with the big bird, bird, he scared me. Anyway, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. I, I get a picture when I read that verse, and it's not Santa Claus. I get a glorious picture of my dad's lazy boy when I was a kid. We had a leather, brown leather lazy boy that sat down in the den and you know, he'd come home and he'd get the paper out and he'd be reading the paper and mom would be fixing dinner. It was a classic, you know, 1950s family. And, and I would come downstairs and he'd go, and I'd go squeeze in between my dad and, and the big overstuffed chair and I would just kind of squeeze in there. I loved it. I felt safe, secure. Dad was home, had that, you know, old spice dad smell and, and the paper out and I would squeeze in there. And I think of that when Jesus says, I will grant you to sit with me on my throne. Suddenly I'm a child again, and suddenly I'm squeezing in beside Jesus, and I'm sure His throne has big overstuffed arms. And I get to do that. The way the Father, the way to the Father is through the Son, and the way to the throne, as the Son showed us, is through the cross. And so we boast in our tribulations. And we boast in the glory of God. Last one, we boast of the reconciliation. Pick it up in verse 6. I'm just going to read down to it. While we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. One will hardly die for a righteous man. Perhaps for the good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more. Having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only this, not only this, pay attention, Paul says, we exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received the reconciliation. Third area to boast of. I boast of the reconciliation. We boast of the reconciliation, the katalage. Katalage which we talked about Wednesday, literally means the exchange. The reconciliation is the exchange. Kata, from a higher place. Alaso or lage from, or it means to exchange. It is an exchange from a higher place. That God was in Christ reconciling the word of reconciliation, the world to Himself not counting their trespasses against them, and He has committed to us the word of reconciliation, 2 Corinthians 5.19. The katalage, the exchange from, the exchange down. His glory for my shame. His grace for my sin. His goodness for my depravity. His perfection for my imperfection. His life for my life, the exchange down. That's reconciliation. And I can boast of that. Because He made Him who knew no sin, 2 Corinthians 5.21, to be sin. The exchange down. So that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. The exchange. I boast of the exchange. I broadcast the exchange. I will tell people about the exchange. The reconciliation. 
I boast in the hope of the glory of God. What the Bible tells me is coming, and who the hope of glory is, is Jesus. And I boast in tribulations. Man, those people really went after you, and all you were doing was telling them about Jesus. They really hammered you. I know what a great... Praise the Lord. I got to suffer for Him. And I boast of the reconciliation, which is an absolutely remarkable, legitimate boast. Paul previously wrote to the churches in Galatia, verse 14 of chapter 6, May it never be that I would boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. That's the exchange, the reconciliation. Revelation 5.5 tells us one of the elders said to John, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome, and I will boast of that. As I said earlier, all this talk of boasting, typically it would be foolishness if applied to me. But I can, I do, and I will boast in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom I have received the lion's share of salvation. 